just being able to surface some of the data and things that we understood and understand how some of that data relates and, you know, sharing that data across the team. So I think, you know, there's a bit of a cop-out, but one of the big things has been just getting into the cadence of data sharing and KPI and getting everyone to understand from sales, marketing, product, all of these things, where they show up in the numbers and, and how they can influence these numbers. That's been a big thing. Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello there, you are listening to Revenue Insights. Today, I'm joined by Jessica Wilkinson. She's the Chief Revenue Officer of Swish Fiber. Across her career, she has worn many hats, from PR through to commercial development, and now she is scaling telco companies. So Jessica, welcome to Revenue Insights. Really excited to chat. Thanks for having me. So first things first, you've had a really interesting career, as I mentioned, going from PR, got a really cool route into where you are today. So for our audience, everyone listening, would be great to hear in your own words how you've reached kind of where you are in your career now. Great. Well, I have the most random career path, I think. I started in my career in public relations and really around commercial community development and, and in the energy industry in Canada. I really focused on uh, media, regulatory, investor. I did a lot of crisis comms at, at that point. And then there came a point in my career where I was sick of writing press releases about what other people were doing and I wanted to do the thing. So I we had just I was working for an energy company in Canada. We had just started a um an oil by rail division and I knew nothing about rail obviously. Uh, but I went down to our new vice president and said, basically I know nothing, but I'm pretty hungry and basically take me as an on a secondment for 6 months and you can always send me back to media um, if I'm not performing for you and and in I think it was 2 or 3 months he's like okay, you're not going back. You're going to stay here. And that was really my first taste of what a commercial role looks like. And, and at the time I was also doing my MBA. So it was being able to kind of learn something at night school and then apply it in the daytime. And, and it was really around how do we um, figure out how to profitably move oil around North America, which was having some difficult difficulties at the time. And I ended up on the acquisition team. We bought a rail terminal and then it was something that was really non-core to our company. It was not anything that, that the company had ever done. Um, I ended up running the rail terminal for a bit and building out all the commercial principles. And so we did the, the integration and, and it was really one of the most fun times, most random, but most fun times in my career of, of getting that going. Um, and then from there, I moved on into consulting and, and that's where I, I spent a lot more time working across a number of different industries. Um, I went from energy to financial services to a bit of healthcare, a bit of government. I did one telco project project um, back in Canada. Um, and I ended up in a bit of a little weird little niche around open banking and personal identity. And, and when I moved over to the UK to open up the UK office or European office for this consulting firm, that's right. I sort of doubled down on, on, on that. And then at the, at the same time, um, my partner had actually just was selling his telco, uh, to a company, um, a subsidiary basically of Octopus Investments. Um, he had to scale from, from, you know, 20 people to 250 people in, in a year. And I had the 
weird range of background experience to to help with that. So that was my first introduction into telco and and jumping in and really really building the the connective tissue around. Okay, how how do, how do we build everything from scratch in in less than a year? Um, and that was from some of the commercial principles to operations and logistics. Basically, what are all the pieces that you you need to uh, make a company run? Um, and then I had the opportunity to join one of our portfolio companies, which is where I'm at, at today. It's called Swish Fiber, and I'm the chief revenue officer. So I I lead basically, you know, the commercial aspects of it from sales, marketing, uh, you know, supporting product, customer care, all of those things into um, and then revenue operations, which is the model I set up when when I first joined Swish. Amazing, so much in there that I feel like we could dive into. I- Definitely want to come back to the running a rail terminal because that's definitely um, a, it feels like a career highlight <laughs> that, that, that I definitely want to touch on. Um, for I think the bit that I'd like to dig into first is around those commercial principles in, in telco. You kind of touched on your commercial team there. It, it, in your words, how would you say it's um, perhaps different uh, in, in what is really a legacy industry, perhaps to you know, uh, a, a technology company or something that is, I don't know what you say is the opposite of legacy, but. Um. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think the telco market is really interesting in the UK right now. There was a regulatory change a few years ago that basically spawned a, a bunch of investment previous, you know, the, the, the history of telco in the UK has really been a monopoly and that's been controlled by sort of one, one large infrastructure provider and, and what they, they made a re- regulatory change that, allowed, I think there's about 100 to 150 of what they call altnets um, who are building a physical asset in, you know, across the UK. And I think one of the the interesting things that I've seen in the market is essentially you have to be a really good construction company first. And you have all of these companies that are going and they're putting, you know, physical asset, physical like fiber optics in the ground. Um, and then they're, and, and you do have to build before you sell, um, and, and it's a really interesting proposition where you have to go into someone's community, rip up their roads. No one really wants you there, to be honest. They want to take their 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 kids to school. They don't want to be having to deal with road closures. And then you have to go back and try and sell them a product. So it it's a bit different from that perspective. And and what I've seen across the market, what I think the market is is experiencing is you have you have a a combination of these companies have gotten bigger. You, you've gone from startup mode into scale up mode, and then you've also had to shift from being a construction company to what is essentially a retail brand and those skill sets, if you've got the right teams working together can be very complementary, but they're not the same. And, and a lot of companies that I've seen in this market are more weighted toward construction and they sort of have a, um, I built a thing and they will come mentality and, and the sales part is easy. And, and I think a lot of companies in, in this um, sector at this time are really struggling to commercialize that. And that's because it's an entirely different approach. Mm, I love that. So, Let's begin then with what was the state of play when you first joined? I'm guessing that it was probably in that kind of construction build-up mode. Yeah, yeah. So the the what had happened with Swish is I think we the company started and they had kind of one prototype community in the sales and marketing um, team was doing a really good job in that in that community on a on a on a proof of concept small scale and and achieve what they needed to do. And then all of a sudden the build area got massive. We were in sort of 30, 40 communities almost overnight. And and the sales and marketing function just didn't scale in, in line with that. Um, and then at the meantime, everything is getting more complex, like getting getting reliable data on the build program and understanding what's going to happen. All of those things that had 
started to, you know, nothing was really working in sync with one another. So when I joined, there was a lot of pressure from the investor and and a lot of pressure that the team was putting on themselves to attract customers and and add customers to to the network. Um, and I'm I'm almost maybe a bit pedantic going going back to first principles, but for me it was around okay, we there's no quick wins here. We there's just doing doing it right and getting the basics and the foundation right. So um, I I when I joined, it was understand what we have for marketing, understand what we have from sales. And then one of the, the big things for me was what was missing was that, you know, I think of RevOps as that connective tissue of some, you know, it's basically a team that has a mandate to work cross-functionally and tie all these things together and, and, and see the whole picture. And that was something that, that I put in place. And, you know, little by little it's, it's, it's worked. We've, we're coming off of a, I keep refreshing our dashboards where we're, basically doubling our, our sales, our record-breaking sales this month. And it is really cool to, to finally see these things coming together. But it's taken, you know, six months of hard work and bringing the right people in and and really breaking down some silos, not only within the teams in, in my departments, between there were some silos between sales and marketing, they weren't necessarily working well together. Now we're going out into the, and trying to work more constructively with the rest of the business, which is, um, which is a, a big construction machine at this point. I love it. Okay. The bit that stood up to me and I'd love to dive into first from that then is you mentioned the foundations and and you kind of alluded to revenue operations role in that. Could you expand a bit more on perhaps three most important foundational pieces that you brought in to, in your words, do it right? Yeah. Yeah. I think when I came in, there was a lot of, and this, and this is not unique to Swish. This is kind of a lot of places that I've gone to. And, and when I was consulting, one of the things I was reflecting on is you, you just see a lot of things that aren't working. Like no one, no one asks a management consultant or a strategy consultant to come in when things are going well. They're like, oh, the company's doing doing amazing. Come in and help us be any better. Like something's pretty fundamentally broken where where whether it's a management team or or they're they're sort of like bring in some consultants where we don't know what to do here. So I've seen a lot of um challenges in, across different teams and in, in different sectors. And and that for some reason now it always comes down to the tool. And they're like, well, we don't have the right tool or the tech team isn't doing it. And and for me, you know, a, a tool is never going to solve your business problems. And and it always comes down to figure out your business process first, figure out what you want. And and here it was a lot of, well, the tools aren't working. We don't have the tools. We don't have the tools. And I was like, eh, you actually don't have the business processes. So we had to go in and sort of reimagine what does this look like? What do we need? You know what does a what does the cadence of a good marketing campaign look like? At, you know we're we're basically having to restart a fairly large marketing machine. Figure out what those processes are. Then go into sales. Figure out what those processes are. We're hiring obviously into these teams at the same time, um, and then you can look at the tools and say, okay, now that we've got our house in order, we're working better together as a team. Then we can go to the the tooling, and I think that's something that a lot of people skip over. And part of it is because there's, you know, all the B2B SaaS companies are like, well, I have the magic tool that's going to, it's, that's going to fix whatever your, your problem is, or I'll fix your data. And, and, and the tools are great, but in a lot that I, I use a lot of, you know, SaaS tools and I, and I love a lot of SaaS tools, but they, you're just spending money if you don't have the foundations within your team to really understand what you want out of them, just how you work match with this, this tooling. And I think one of the big power things in, in bringing in um, my head of RevOps has been, and, and he's fantastic. And um, I brought in someone who's uh, was in the military as I needed. <laughs> it's basically like, okay. But I, he's got a really interesting career too. But I think being able to come in and, and have a really clear um, 
understanding of, of what the tooling can do and what's the potential, and then being able to be that, not a single point of contact, but be able to run the tech roadmap from the business side, that's been really essential. And as we're growing and as we're transforming and we're basically rebuilding our entire our tech stack, um, that's something that's critical. But you can only that only works if you've got the business processes in place. So then the question is, of all the processes that you've implemented, <laughs> what is the one that you would say has been the most impactful? Oh God, that one's really tough because I think there's there's a lot of things. It, it just comes down to doing a hundred little things right or better every day. I think there's not kind of a, a silver bullet. I think for me, the, the one thing that we, we did was set up... Um, and it, it sounds really stupid and really obvious, but just being able to surface some of the data in, in things that we understood and understand how some of that, that data relates and, sh- and, you know, sharing that data across the team. So I think, you know, there's a bit of a cop out, but it, one of the big things has been just getting into the cadence of data sharing and KPI and getting everyone to understand from sales, marketing, product, all of these things, where they show up in the numbers and, and how they can influence these numbers. That, that's been a big thing. We're, we're sort of in the, in the mess, I think. One of the the things that is very under um, probably underrated in terms of complexity is always billing processes. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of we're spending a lot of time with our our finance team, and, that, and that's really where having someone you know the RevOps team is responsible for our operations management and our end to end customer processes. They can bring all the teams together, and for me, solving the billing process and getting all the teams understanding what needs to be done in each step and where they fit into it and how they show up and where they they see. The other one has been sort of, this has really been out, but order changes. Like we, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on in telco and upgrading and downgrading and, and changing stuff around. And we didn't really have, and, and we're, we're not quite there yet, but we're getting there. Really good discipline and, and sort of hygiene around how we treat that. And it really, it really for me comes down to how do you make the people who are at the, on the front lines, like the frontline sales executives, the frontline customer care execs, the frontline installation people who are actually going to rock up at your house and, and install fiber in your home. How do you make their jobs as easy as possible and and take the the guesswork out of sort of 90% of the situations they, they find themselves in a day? If you can automate and make sort of all of the standardized of the 80% of the things you're going to experience, you know exactly what to do. That leaves the mental capacity and the energy and the time to deal with the 10% of, you know, truly weird shit that does pop up and, and you, you shouldn't build for edge cases. You should build for that, the 80% of just the boring stuff. Absolutely. And I'm not going to drill you anymore on processes because don't worry, you're, you're <laughs> in the right place to talk about them. Um, I love to nerd out on a process flow. I mean, everyone, everyone on my team knows I'm like, okay, what's the process? Write it down. Like, let's get a mirror board and, and sticky it out. So exactly. And it's often the thing that gets overlooked as well. So often it's, um, Particularly a couple of years ago, it was no, it's grow, grow, grow at all costs. Let's, you know, we'll throw all that out the window. And actually, it's only when you've started to steam ahead that it's like, oh God, I've, I've built no, I like to refer to it as like building tracks behind you as you go um, so that everyone can follow it kind of in your own footsteps, right? Um, so, what I'm intrigued for us to kind of dig into then is we, we've talked a little bit around um, kind of what, what is kind of like a legacy industry. So, in your role as a CRO and going in, you're, you're bringing in what is a very different approach. And um, having spoken to revenue leaders in kind of more traditional industries, bigger bigger companies, you know, bringing in change like that, that always proves to be a challenge. So how did you approach um, kind of bringing in your way 
of running the revenue team with key stakeholders within the business? I think this is not going to win me any friends, but I, I think one of the things that I really focus on is hiring people from outside telco. Like we've got a lot of good expertise in the in the technical side. Like we've got really good network operations and, and we have people who know how to how to how to build networks. But I think if you've grown up in these really big telco companies like BT and OpenReach and you know Virgin and and you've sort of got a mentality of oh this is how it should look. Um that doesn't always yield the best just because that's how it's been done doesn't mean that's the best way it can be done. And and I have a lot of empathy for people who are trying, you know, anyone who's worked in sort of a change organization, these massive, massive companies, it's a nightmare. Like you're, you're trying to knit together a whole bunch of legacy, you know, systems, getting data is, is awful. Every time you touch something, it costs like 200,000 quid minimum. So, um, so I do have a lot of empathy for that, but for me, it was, we've got such a unique opportunity in, in the way that the Altnet market and some of the challenger brands are coming up in this, bring in the best from that really good retail operations and, and who scaled. I've got people who scaled energy brands. I've got people who, um, who uh, are head of marketing right now, used to be at Ringo. And, you know, I was like, if you can care about a parking app, you can definitely care about fiber. And I think for me that that's been a really big thing is, is we don't have to do it the way that the industry is done. And in order to do that, you need to attract people who haven't been sort of locked in, in how this industry thinks. And, and I think it's probably a little bit to my detriment. Like there's a, uh, there's definitely, I'm naive a little bit, even coming into telco and saying, well, this is how I think it should be done. Sometimes the network operations team will put their hands up or, or our tech team be like, mm, that's, that's not how, but you need to have that kind of tension of, okay, what's possible and always kind of push that, that limit. And I think that's been the, that's been the interesting thing is balancing and it comes, it, it's all industries, right? Like you always need to kind of inject some fresh thinking and fresh talent and, and, you know, always look for what industry I don't look at competitors as, you know, what are the other alt nets who are building in our area? I look at my competitors as, okay, what are the brands I want to emulate? What is the feeling that, you know, people have when they, when they build into those brands and then, and then how using that as our, our commercial challenge. Yeah, I like that approach because, uh, I mean, inevitably, if you're going to change things and do it in a different way, particularly to what your competitors are doing, inevitably means that you're going to step on some toes because it's, hang on, everyone else isn't doing that. So why are we doing it differently? That just doesn't seem to make much sense. So um, how do you then kind of prove to them the success of of what you're doing? You, you kind of alluded to it earlier that you've had a really uh, successful time recently. So if t- is it literally, here's the revenue number, that's it? Or, uh, or is it a little more sophisticated than that? There was... Um... So when I first came in, I trashed sales. I, um, and I, and I, I have to kind of give my colleagues on our, our executive team and our, our senior leadership team some credit because I, there was a lot of like, just trust me, this is going to work, but it, it's, you know, the, the numbers were not going in, in my direction in the first few months of my, of my tenure. And, and, um, and for me, it's it's building those credi- credibility. We 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 talked a lot with our board and our team about reasons to believe and and looking into okay, what are those what are those proof points? Because I I think I had one of the fewest um, since we started. A pretty bad September was brutal. October was not quite as brutal, but still not the trajectory that we wanted. And and for context, I started kind of part time with Swish in June. I was still transitioning from another portfolio company. It was like full time August. So it's not really confidence inducing for a team where they like you bring in someone and then, you know, she immediately trashes <laughs> trashes the the machine that you 
already had that wasn't really working. So there was a lot of trust that I had to to build with that. But you know, to the team's credit and the board's credit, they gave us a, you know some breathing room and and let us build what we needed to do. So a lot of it was just pulling out those glimmers of hope and saying, okay, I, I know the overall number doesn't look like this, but you know, we're really gaining traction on on our our insider or direct sales team. Or okay, we're able to recruit. We've got you know a, we we rely on field um, field agents, and we we took a very different model than was happening. And you you just kind of have to pull those points and say, okay, it is it is going to show up in the numbers. And then it really wasn't until I would say the November, back half of November that we really started to gain traction. But then of course you go into December, holidays, Christmas, that whole thing. So you don't really even get to see um, any of that come forward until, you know, January, the beginning of February, I was um, completely breaking it to be completely, to be honest, like <laughs> things weren't, it just was really slow. Like the numbers were, were really the, in the beginning part of February. So I did send this email to, to our team and said, okay, here's some more reasons to believe. I know the numbers don't look you know, great mid month. And then we, you know, since mid February, it's, it's like a rocket's been, been lit under our team. And now it's around, okay, how, is this, you know, can we maintain it? And, and it really is picking up those proof points and saying, okay, it's, it's showing up in the overall numbers. It's showing up in the lead gen. It's showing up in, you know, revenue. We've been playing with products and, and there's a lot of test and learning that, that needs to happen. And we need to be disciplined about testing and learning as well and actually extracting. Okay. When we change the price of this thing, We've seen this volume increase, or we've seen this this yield, and 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 how do we capitalize on that? So we're definitely still in a lot of you know proof point mode. Is there? Uh, you mentioned there particular around testing and learning. Um, what I was going to ask is, you know, why why do you think you've been successful? But what I'm actually really interested to know is, kind of within that, is there perhaps like a three things that you've done that you found to be, you know, this is really move the needles for us? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one thing we did is, so our, we use, we use field agents for, for, um, a good chunk of it. We, we've were, we were working with a partner prior to me coming in, they had an agreement with a partner who was basically a national brand and they go in and subcontract field agents. And, and that just wasn't working for me. One, I didn't like, um, I didn't like the lack of control. I didn't like you know, I didn't know where people were going. I wasn't really getting um, uh, great engagement from that team. They were really trying to, I think, strong arm us. And and you know, when your your field agent contractor is trying to strong arm you over product and pricing, I was like, this is not working. So we stopped working with them. And and um, our head of sales had some people he had worked with before. And we went to a you know we worked directly with with these agencies. You know, we we know who's at the door. We know what they're doing every day. If there is, on the rare occasion, because um, the thing I'm most worried about whenever you're relying on on contractors is, are you eroding the brand or are you damaging the brand in in, in some way? And we've managed to because of the approach we've taken in contracting and building those teams, um, where where we have control over that. They they care about it just as much as we do, and 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 that's gone really well. And I think in the in the last few months in particular, that's really grown. We've gotten really good feedback and and you know, this market is very competitive at the moment. Like I said, there's a hundred to 150 and they're all feeling pressure from their investors. They've pumped a bunch of money into this market and and not anyone I think is, is getting the selling rates or the penetration rates that were maybe promised in the initial business case. So it is really competitive. So for me, it is, it is important that we're, we're shown as a, you know, a partner of choice, whether we're working with affiliates or referrals or agents, like that, that's something that is really essential and, and will be more and more essential as we grow. Um, 
one of the challenges we've had has been the big one has been just surfacing data. And that's something that anyone who, um, anyone who's been working kind of is, hasn't been, uh, if your stack hasn't been built with sort of future case in mind. And, and in this case, it was, um, the, the team before me really worried about speed to market and, and they were like, we want to get a, an initial customer. And, and some of the tooling that they, some of the requirements and things they built into the tooling just wasn't necessarily built to scale. So we spent a lot of time in the first initial months kind of trolling through what we could surface, what our limitations were. Um, and, and there's some, there's some definitely some manual processing, which I always hate, um, coming out of, out of tooling, but really getting into the numbers and understanding those types of things. We couldn't test and learn until we unlock some of that data. That was one of that, that foundation. So setting up a team that could really dig into the data. And even though the tooling is still very imperfect, um, we can at least now surface those insights that do help our marketing team, our sales team make those better decisions. Love all that you're saying. Is that therefore then where revenue operations is coming into it for you? Yeah. So the the RevOps team is really focused on kind of three things, and and I feel like I'm explaining to the converted, but you know we've <laughs> we've got the data insights and analytics. So being in, going in and supporting our team, there is some manual processing that has to happen from a marketing perspective and a, a sales perspective. So they do a little bit of that as well, but really setting up a a, a team that can dig into the data and use that same kind of data data source to support sales and marketing installs and and customer care and to me that's important because if you if you have these things in silos there's just something inherent about companies and and I don't I can't even kind of pinpoint what happens but people do put their head down they get the job and they don't necessarily lift their eyes up to the horizon to see what's happening so for me having a centralized data team across all of your customer facing teams is is that's the only way you can kind of contextualize and say, okay, well, if this is happening in customer care, the impact on sales is or can be X. And and you need people who who can see that full view. Then there's obviously the process operations management, business process optimization, whatever you want to, whatever consulting word you want to use for it. But essentially it's it's giving them the mandate to own those end-to-end processes. Cause it and, and everyone runs into this where you've, you know, I, I was going into our our leadership team meetings and it's like, well. Billing had this problem and and with finance has this problem and um, customer care is this and and no one's kind of owning the whole, if that makes sense. And and there's no one. So the, the, the people that I've had have been really good about bringing the right stakeholders together and kind of doing that, what is essentially grind work, but saying, okay, what do you need? Cool. What do you need? Um, and I just remember when I was, I was doing this in an energy company years ago and we were, we were kind of, it, it was, the company was like over a hundred years old. It was kind of, it started a crown corporation in Canada and evolved into things. And in our, in our teams, we had people who were, their job was literally just reformatting data into spreadsheets because the data they would get from the traders, for example, came in a different format than, than what someone else would needed. And there was so much of just putting data in spreadsheets through this whole thing where all you need to do is say, well, can the traders just change their format of whatever they're capturing it in a slightly different way. And it changed everyone's jobs downstream. So you do need to have someone that digs into that. And then the big thing is the the third thing around RevOps is, is that tech stack and that tooling. And, and there's, we've, we've been kind of scoping out what does a complete rebuild look like? And, and we're, we're rebuilding CRM. We need to rebuild our, our front end, all of that stuff. Um, but then also in, in the, how do we optimize what we have? We can't just stop all work clean, build the perfect system and then, and then restart again. So they're that team. And I've got a solutions architect in there right now who's helping with 
it, simple things like how do you do self-serve for installations? And, and everyone's like, oh, there's a tool for that. And you're like, yeah, well, there's a lot of process and data and, and ways of working that you need to improve before your magic, you know, self-scheduling tool works. So, so that's really the, the core of the RevOps team is data process, um, technology. And then really their mandate is to work with not only everyone on our team, but that's kind of the, the interface for all the other teams in the business. It also sounds really exciting, like in terms of everything that, you, that you're building together. The, the Telco, it's sexier than you think. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm being sold on it. I know, exactly. <laughs> um, the, the, the thing that I was really curious around was you mentioned around, obviously from the data, you're, you're pulling some of those insights for your teams. Could you perhaps give um, a bit of context around the types of insights that you're surfacing for them, but then also the processes that you have in place for teams to then leverage those insights? Yeah. So when we, a lot of it has shown up in, um, in marketing. So when the, the team was going through some challenges, when I, when I first got in and we had, we had, you know, they were basically in survival mode a little bit in, in very highly reactive with the, the, what, um, you know, things needed from the business. So we had lost kind of that regular cadence. So a lot of what we've done is, you know, really simple, A-B testing, trying some things, learning, like there's, it, there's no, there's nothing sexy in it to be, to be completely honest. But, um, a lot of it is, you know, understanding what creative or what collateral, what messaging works in, in, for the audience. And I think we've been as an industry, telco has, has really been sold on that, like price v speed and everything you look at, you'll get, you know, flyers from anyone or everyone's, everyone's trying playing in that. And, and what we've been really playing with over the last six months is, okay, what if we didn't play in that market or what is that emotional, um, you know, it, what is the emotional response to broadband? And, and so we did a lot of consumer research at the very beginning. And it was really interesting to me, um, cause the, the former telco I was at was enterprise B2B only in London. This is, is retail consumer residential. And, um, people have a really weird, it was just an interesting emotional connection to your broadband because you think about it as a utility, but, um, you know, you don't have the same fear around your water being shut off or your electricity not working, your lights not coming on. And, and that there's really a lot of security that comes with utility. Broadband is, is utility that's really essential to the backbone of a home when you think about it in terms of how people play, how people connect, how people work. Um, and yet there's this kind of underlying fear of what happens when it goes down. And, and I think there's a lot of, I was surprised, and I think it's because I don't have children myself, of how much anxiety people had at not when the broadband goes down, because it doesn't even cut out very often, but the fear that if it does, and then it does create unrest when your kid can't play you know, a video game or you, you know, you're trying to pitch, you're trying to work from home and you don't have the right connection. And so it's a really interesting emotional response that people have with their broadband provider. And, and so what we've been doing a lot is kind of testing and learning different message points and saying, I don't want to just choke price v speed because no one understands speed of broadband. Let's be clear. Like I, um, I work in this industry, I've worked in this industry for a few years now and I still can't you know, conceptualize what's the difference between 200 megs and a gig and what's fast. And everyone, everyone's like, oh, mega fast and super fast and slightly more faster. And, and it's really, um, it's a really confusing market to kind of come in. So we're trying really to strip that back and say, okay, well, what do normal people who don't really want to know, understand the underpinnings of how their, their internet gets to them? How do they, 
how do they want to buy broadband? How do we make this easy for them? How do we give them the confidence? Because anytime you're switching broadband providers, there's always faff around install and, and moving stuff around. How do we give them the confidence that during that install process, like we won't let them down, there won't be, you know, unrest, family members won't be fighting. And and really it's been playing with that messaging, seeing what kind of engagement we're getting with our collateral, seeing what kind of, you know, response we're getting from what we call registrations of interest, which is basically just leads um, that we collect during the build process. How is that converting into, into um, actual sales and orders? And, and most importantly, how's that connecting to installs and, and customers on the network? Because the challenge with this industry in particular is your pre-install cancellations are sort of a I jokingly refer to it as like a bit of a valley of death of when you've made a sale and before someone can come and actually install that, there's a lot that can go wrong. There's a lot of technical stuff. There's a lot of construction scheduling stuff that can go wrong. And if you can make customers feel supported through that valley of death, um, then actually they're quite sticky and 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 you you just need to treat them right after that, which unfortunately is where a lot of the legacy telco providers really fall down. This is great. <laughs> I, I, I'm really enjoying this. So the one thing that I really wanted to ask then is, because it sounds like all is going very well, it sounds like you're really starting to prove the value of it. Um, and so if you could, uh, so you've been with Switch for, is it eight months now? Yeah, I think it'll be eight months. If, if, you, if we could wave a magic wand and go back in time to the very beginning, knowing what you know now, would you do anything differently? I would have moved faster on some of our tech builds because now we're... Um, we're we're part of a you know group. We, the, so the the fund that that we're we're a part of, they funded a number of um, uh, fiber to the home companies. We're all going through a bit of a, an exercise to see if if we can come together and work together. So that's unfortunately slowed down some of the tech build we wanted to do. So I think selfishly for me, if we would have been able to go faster um, on on some of that tech build, I would have been able to to unblock a lot of our systems and, and tech stack problems. I think. I would have, it's a tough one. I, I think I still would have fixated on the data. Um, I had, when I came in, I reorganized the sales team in a way that made sense at the time. And it was it was a bit of a knee jerk of, okay, we just need to create a little bit of certainty on that. And I, re, I re, arranged them regionally, which wasn't quite the right move, but I didn't really have another option, if I'm honest. I would, But it, what it ended up doing is meant the, the team over the last... Um, you know, eight months. It's not that they've been massive reorgs, but there's definitely been some, you know, nudges and, and changes in org structure. And I think anytime and reporting lines and all those things. And and anytime you do that, even though everyone does end up in the right place, it does just create a lot of like, okay, un- uncertainty. So I think I um I would have done some different things around how we reorganize the team in those in those early days. I'm not sure if what I would have exactly done differently, but I um I regret any position where if if any member of the team who'd been there didn't feel confident or didn't feel certain and 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 I think for me my number one job as a senior leader is is to make people feel confident and empowered to do the best they can in in that role and and that's where whenever you're moving teams around you I think it it can be really difficult for some people because it's not just you know a job it's can I can I pay my rent? Can I pay my mortgage? Like there's a whole bunch of emotional things that come with, with, you know, the things surrounding your job. So that was one thing that I wish, I think I could have done it differently, or I think I could have brought in some people sooner or, or those kind of things. Um, I really, I really held out. I did a lot of interviews for marketing and brand, and I wanted to bring in the right people who were biased toward outside telcos. And, and, um, I was getting a lot of, uh, 
initial CVs from people who are from other alt nets or from the other industry. And I was, I was a bit of a stickler and, and a bit pedantic about like, no, I want, I want someone who's scaled, um, scaled a retail brand before or scaled something like that. So I think I was maybe a little bit slower to hire some of the senior leadership roles that we, we needed, um, to provide that, that guidance. So those, those kind of are the big things that I, I would have done differently. And then, yeah, I just wish I would have moved faster. <laughs> I, I think we all wish we, we, we could have moved faster, right? Uh, <laughs> time seems to be the uh, most finite resource. Yeah, times. exactly. So the last thing I kind of wanted to touch on, obviously for everyone listening, there's a lot of people that are in RevOps roles or they're, they're kind of working their way up towards really, you know, quite an aspirational role as a, as a CRO. And, and it sounds like you've really embodied, you know, making revenue operations and really a data-driven approach to go to market a, a core part of your strategy. So for, for anyone that's on that journey, what would your advice be to them in terms of, you know, stepping up to that role as, 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 as a CRO? I think the number one piece of advice I give everyone is don't fixate on titles. And I, I give, it doesn't matter whether you're RevOps or, or, or anything. It, for me, it's around, you know, not that I think my very meandering career path is, is necessarily the right way, but I think, I think people do get a bit sticky on the external validation that comes with a certain title or, or a certain thing. And, and for me, it's always been around like chase the interesting work and chase the interesting problem and, and, and things come out of that. And it, it, it's worked out okay for me so far. We'll see. Um, we'll see, we'll see what happens next, but it, it really, for me comes to, this is, this is still a bit of a, not emerging anymore, but it's still a bit of a new concept. And, and especially if you're going into trying to explain what this is to, senior leaders and and how and and what benefit it is it does come down to being able to have those defensible proof points and saying okay i've got this data i've got this idea and and how can i help my colleagues or how can i help other people really succeed at their job through you know a, a revenue operations thing that we can do um the the most interesting problem i think that most companies so startups startups have it a bit easier because they they often are um, you know, more software driven as a, just as their nature, a lot of, a lot of early companies just have more inherent tech literacy and data literacy where some of the, um, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for, for people in this area to go into some of these legacy companies, not, or, or legacy industries and say, okay, let's bring in a really tech forward data forward approach. But that does come with, you know, not resistance, but I think a lack of understanding. So the more people can be really clear and concise around, I've got this data point, it will create this result or have this impact, um, or this is something we've done and, and kind of coming back to that reasons to believe, that's always helpful. I think most of my job is having the, I guess, the confidence to make um, make decisions based on imperfect information. And And I think a lot of people are always trying to get to, okay, well, what is the what is the, how, how do I make the exact perfect decision? And, and sometimes it, it's not about the perfect decision. It's just a decision. Someone needs to make a decision and keep momentum going. And, and the more I can, I've been able to increase my trust in the data and the team. And, you know, for, for the first few bit, whenever I saw numbers, I'm like, Ooh, I don't know where they're coming from. I don't know. Is that right? The little kind of data points, the very few, few data points I had, did I trust them? Now I'm in a position where when my team comes to me with something and says, this is going to make a difference or this is what we're seeing, it is, it, is, it makes my job so much easier. So I think it's don't, don't try and be, you know, 
perfect. Don't strive for perfection, whether it be in title or whether it be like, just keep some momentum going and and be able to demonstrate if you've got a good idea and you can back it up with data, like that's how you're going to get, make the biggest impact and, you know, and, and climb the ladder. And the big thing is just, you know, being, a lot of it is just around like being someone that people want to work with. And I think there's such we get kind of stuck on the data analytics and the tech and everything in this role, but a lot of it is most of your job is around how do you encourage other people to work together. So those soft skills are so, so essential when you're, you know, you can present a bunch of data and charts and everything, but if you don't know how to bring people along with that journey or tell a compelling story around it. So things like communication skills, things like interpersonal and, and even, even a bit of negotiation as you're trying to balance priorities, like don't neglect the, the soft skills and ask, you know, ask for feedback on the soft skills. Um, I got some feedback this, this week and, and, you know, especially I think in, in the UK, not everyone is, is really forward with feedback. So like always ask for it, be like, could I, could I have done something differently in this meeting? Is there something that's, you know, not coming off the right way or can I do things differently? Um, I think that makes the, the biggest difference. That's what I see the, the, the kind of biggest skills gap between, you know, who can be a really great senior leader and, and who's a, a really great analyst. And a lot of it just comes down to those soft interpersonal skills. Uh, yeah, you're 100% right. British people aren't very good at coming forward for feedback. I can second that. Um, <laughs> I think I shocked someone where I sent an email. I was like, hey, I'm hearing some things. Can we please have, and he was like, oh, oh okay. But I, I think it's, it's so important. Like you have to be like, we're all adults here. Um, mm. And, and no one, no one, you can, I can't do anything differently unless I get the feedback or ask for the feedback. And and you do kind of have to have, it's always a bit of a, um, it's always awkward, but everyone gets better at, as a result of that. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Jessica, one final question. Um, what is one book that you would recommend to other revenue leaders? I've been waiting. I've been waiting for this book. <laughs> um, the, this is the, the highlight of the interview for me. No, I read a lot, but one of the things, um, one of the best books I've read is, it's a book called Range by David Epstein. And it's uh, it's essentially... I think I like it because it validates all of my life choices, which is probably something I should discuss in therapy. But um, it's really about how how generalists triumph in a specialist world, and and how kind of knowing a little bit about a law. And it's really just around. I think the the thesis is around having more context. I think even you, if you. And, and specialists are great. Don't get me wrong. I'm very grateful there are specialists in all sorts of different fields, like medical and different things. But um, but you need to balance that with somebody who has that, uh, I guess, the skills and the context of okay, how do you use this information? How do you use this this specialism in 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 the best way? So for anyone who's had a bit of a whether it's a meandering career path or or feels like they're not an expert in something, don't panic. Read the book and you'll feel a lot better about yourself. <laughs> Oh, that's a perfect recommendation off the back of the, the previous que- uh, question as well. So I think that's excellent. Jessica, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think I've blurted it out earlier. I've really enjoyed this. Really great to get uh, insight into a very different industry, particularly on from a UK focus as well. For everyone listening, if they want to reach out, if they had the same kind of feelings of excitement, like listening to it, um, where, where can they find you? Probably LinkedIn is the is the best way to to find me on there. Um, yeah, send me a message. I'm always happy to, uh, you know, and uh, people who have experienced, I guess this is more of a plea for help than anything. People who are kind of coming in and, and experiencing the same challenges, please reach out because I, I love to get some advice and 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 guidance on on how other people are tackling this too. Amazing. We'll, we'll put a link down in the uh, in Great. the show notes below. And well, thank you again. And for everyone that's listened to the episode this week, thank you so much. We'll catch you next week. 
Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.